It's great to uh, be with you guys. I always love um, uh, coming and, and, and sharing in the, in the Word today. And um, we are back in the book of John. I was looking back. We started our series in the book of John in August of 2020. That was a long time ago. Now, we've taken a couple breaks here and there and, and done some different things uh, that, that have been great and awesome. And we just came out of our series on Advent. And so the last time that we were actually in John was November 21st, so almost six weeks ago. Um, and so to catch everyone up to speed, and if your memories are challenged like mine is, I think it'll be good for us to kind of jump right in and, uh, and kind of remember where we've been in the book of John. I'm going to give you this one little disclaimer as well. I, uh, I have, I, 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 this morning I decided to change a little bit of the order of my message, and I'm not very tech savvy, and the computer was against me. It, it would not let me print the thing that I wanted to print, and so basically what I ended up having is a bunch of arrows and all sorts of things on my notes. So if you notice a little bit more shuffling than normal, I apologize, just bear with me. I remember Schrader used to show me his notes, Tom Schrader used to show me his notes, and they were, they were gigantic. They were big pages, huge writing, highlighters and circles and arrows and stuff pointing everywhere. I had no idea how he did it, and I think it was just the process. So I'm hoping I can be as smooth as he was with the giant pages, with the arrows and all of that stuff, but I seriously doubt it. So one little disclaimer. Okay, John 17. I, I, I can't, I, I don't think I can stress the importance of this passage um, in, in the life of a believer enough. This is the culmination of the ministry of Jesus before he goes to the cross on our behalf. This is a passage that many have deemed the high priestly prayer or the real Lord's prayer because it's actually a prayer that he prayed, not simply a way that he instructed his disciples to pray. And it's important for us to remember how we got here. So in, in John, John kind of hits the ground running. A lot of the other Gospels, you know, they do the whole, you know, nativity scene and Jesus is a baby and all that. No, John hits the ground running and he starts and he basically says, we're told right away that Jesus was in creation. Jesus created all things, that he was back in the beginning. And, and by the end of chapter one, he's calling his disciples into ministry. By chapter two, he's performing his first miracle. As we start to move through the, the middle chapters of the book of John, we see many uh, miracles and, and incredible um, things that Jesus is doing, and all of them are pointing, or, or you're, seeing, like, you're seeing the compassion and the love and the movement of Jesus towards people in his miracles. And while he's doing this, there's a growing resentment from the religious leaders of the day who do not like the way that Jesus is doing things. Because they're committed to their laws, they're committed to their, their rules, and, and Jesus is not as committed to their extra laws and rules, and they don't like that. And there's this growing resentment and tension. And then we see many illusions along the way where Jesus is basically telling us who he is. And, and he's telling us, listen, I'm not just some man here come to earth. I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just a good teacher. I am God. And we see this in verse 1 of chapter 1, but we see more allusions to it. And then finally in John 10.30, he says it plainly. The Father and I are one. I am not claiming to be anything other than that. I am claiming to be God. 
Jesus is God. So now we are introduced to the concept of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our mind being blown by this because it's not a concept that we are familiar with, nor is it a concept that any human being could embody himself, you know what I mean? But the, the, the reality is in Scripture, we don't get to define who God is, he gets to define who he is, we get to be blown away by that concept and try and understand it. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all in communion with one another, one Three in one. As the tensions continue to rise, Jesus' uh, love displayed by truth and compassion for people and the rigorous rules and laws of the religious people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it becomes very, very clear that they want to kill him. They want to put him to death. And if you've been around for any of this, you've seen it. It's, it's been in multiple passages. They sought to put him to death, but his time had not come. And we see this illustration over and over again of light in the darkness. Jesus tells us from the beginning, he came to be light in the darkness, light in the darkness. He came with the intention of bringing light, spiritual light to a spiritually dark place to bring salvation. And he was going to do that through his death on the cross as a payment for sins, for your sin and for my sin. So we come to John 17, and before we got there, we we entered into John 14 through 17, which is this beautiful section of John where he knows he's coming to the end of his life. And 14, 15, and 16 is this amazing discourse of John to his disciples, and at 17, he's now going to the Father. He's going to pray. And it's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus that we have. It's incredible. It's, it's I mean, they're not ironic or coincidence, whatever it is, that... Um, Berger just mentioned that Jesus loved to go to the mountains to pray. It's one of the things that I came across in my study, which is absolutely true. We see Jesus doing it all the time, and we also see this reference in the Old Testament of God dwelling on a holy mountain. And Jesus goes, and he begins to pray, and in this longest recorded prayer that we have, the, even just these first five verses, there's so much packed into these. There's so many places we could go. One message could never exhaust these five verses, let alone maybe even one of these verses. So there's no way that we could really dive deeply into every piece of this. But this morning, God has simply laid on my heart four lessons that we can learn um, from these first five verses of Jesus' high priestly prayer. A lesson about God, a lesson about prayer, a lesson about life, and a lesson about living. So we're going to jump right in. A lesson about God. And I realized as I was thinking through this, I'm going to, we're going to hit this, like we're, we are hitting the ground running just like John is, because this concept is one that when I, I was a Christian for a long time before it dawned on me or before I heard someone talk about this, and it comes out of this passage, so I don't want to ignore it, I can't ignore it, but here is a lesson about God. God is for God. God is for God. And that is the best thing for us. Now, maybe for you, that's not a revolutionary concept. You go, well, of course, God is for God. But here's the contrast. We hear, I think, all the time, and it is true that God is for us, right? God is for us. Romans chapter 8 even tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. God is for us, but he is only for us because he is ultimately for himself, God is for God, and it is the best thing for us because guess who it points us to? It points us to him who is the most satisfying thing for us. 
And where does this come from? For us to understand and see this, there's a concept in John 17, one through five, a word that comes back or variations of that word that comes back over and over again that I think it's really important for us to understand. And it is the word glory or glorify or glorified. If we look at verse one, Jesus begins and he lifts his eyes to heaven and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And then if you skip down to verse five, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, this could get a little bit confusing because he's talking about, give me glory so that I can give you glory, but then I don't have glory. Would you give me back the glory that I used to? It's like, well, hold on a second. I don't understand because this gets a little confusing. It seems like Jesus is almost saying four different things. He had a certain glory before coming to the earth. That glory was God's glory. We're told in John chapter one and in Colossians chapter one, and we know this to be true, that Jesus is eternal. Jesus existed before he came to the earth. He incarnated to the earth. He is Emmanuel, God with us, but he existed with the Father and the Holy Spirit in eternity past. And in that, he's saying, okay, I, what is he saying? It seems like I have glory, I don't have glory, I want the glory back that I, what's he saying? Well, that The easiest way for us to understand that is the concept of glory is a very, very large concept. And what Jesus is referencing in context is two different kind of concepts of glory or two different types or forms of glory. One comes from the Greek, which is in the New Testament, the original language of the New Testament, and one comes from the Hebrew, which is the original language of most of the Old Testament. In the Greek, the word doxa, which is kind of the primary root of glory, originally became a word that kind of meant of good thought or good opinion, and then became something where it was like, this is something where it means it merits good favor or merits a good opinion. It's the word that we get the words like paradox from or orthodox, so correct thought or contrary thought. And this word kind of evolved over time and essentially became something to mean like when we say glory, we are saying this is something to be very well thought of, to have a high opinion of. And what words you could think of are praise, honor, renown, esteem, the lifting up of one. And what Jesus is saying is he's in John, I think it's uh, chapter two, the wedding at Cana. Jesus performs his first miracle and it says that his glory was revealed. Well, what's it talking about? If he's asking God to give him glory back, it's talking about that character, that weight, that esteem that he never, never gave up, that is clearly within the character of Christ, is the glory of God, that, that, uh, that renown, that honor, that dignity is there. But there's also another concept. Another concept from the Hebrew, the, the kind of the equivalent word that you would see in, um, in the Old Testament is a word that kind of means things uh, like weight or importance. You heard Paul last week, if you were here, he talked about glory meaning weight, weight or heaviness, honor, splendor, dignity. It's also the word that if you remember the story of Moses that was used to describe the glory of God when Moses said, show me your glory. And if you remember that story, God said, I can't do that (laughs) because if I show you my full glory, it'll be like you melted off the face of the earth. Like, like, I can't do that. My, it, it encapsulates the brilliance, the radiance, all of the character and all of who God is. 
Like, listen, if I, if I showed that to you, it would be more brilliant than the sun. It, it would be something you could not withstand. I cannot do that. And in that sense, very practically, when Jesus incarnated and came to the earth, he did not share that glory with God the Father. So what he's saying is, in verse 1, Father, glorify your Son, lift me up, put me on the cross for the payment of sin that I might glorify, lift you up by bringing many sons and daughters into your family. And then in verse 5, he's saying, now my work is done. Return, return to us, return to me the glory that we shared in the Godhead, in the Trinity, before I came to this earth. And what we see in this, when I say God is for God, more than he is for us, is we see the beauty of the communion of the Trinity. The Father and Son glorifying one another constantly. You, you, have you ever asked yourself, what were Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit doing before the world began? They existed in eternity past. What were they doing? They were in perfect harmony, community, relationship, glorifying one another, speaking words of truth and love and, and admiration to one another, existing in perfect harmony, the relationship that all of us should exemplify. God is for God. Jesus, God the Son, is for God the Father. God the Father is for Jesus, God the Son. And those are the primary things that they are for. They are for God. And what that does for us, it points us to him exclusively. If God was so self-deprecating that he said, no, I will sacrifice. I'm going to be for you more than anything else. I'm going to give you the honor and you the renown and you the praise. And I'm going to give you the glory. Who would that point us to? It would point us to us. There is no hope in that. There is only hope in God, and so he points us to himself. God is for God. Amen. Number two. This is where I gotta shuffle a little bit. A lesson on prayer or a lesson about prayer is something that comes out of this passage. God wants to show you his glory through Jesus. Jesus is a lesson about prayer. God wants to show you his glory through Jesus. Something that comes screaming out of this passage is the example of Jesus in prayer. The example of what it looks like for Jesus to be someone who's in prayer and what he does in prayer and why he prays. There's this beautiful contrast to why Jesus prays versus why I think most of us pray a lot of the time, and I confess this myself. What is Jesus going to God for? He's not going to God because he doesn't know what's going to happen. He's not going to God because he hasn't already accepted what's going to happen. In fact, never in Jesus' ministry does he go to him because he is in need of something practical the way we often go to God in prayer. I recently, um, we recently went through a refinance on our home, which I assume many of you have as well. How many people have refinanced within the last year or two? No one wants to talk about it? Oh, it's because money. Sorry, sorry. It's money. So leave, that, leave that out there. I tease some financial stuff around here too, so it's a very open topic to me. But anyway, 
So I refinanced over the last year. Imagine, imagine if in the application process, because obviously they ask you all sorts of personal information, they want to know everything about you, and you're submitting this application and you're hoping to get in return a response from them that is positive for you. You've submitted the application, you've given them all the information, you've told them what you want, and you hope what's going to come back is positive information for you. What if the mortgage officer called you and said, hey, I want to get together with you, I want to meet up. Well, that's a a little odd, but okay, let, let's, let's meet up. And I, that's only odd these days. Back, back in, I don't know, the good old days, I don't, I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm not that old. I'm looking at a bunch of people who are younger than me and so many that are older than me. But, you know, you would actually meet with your mortgage officer. Anymore, everything's done, like, online, on the phone, whatever. So they call you and they say, we want to meet. And you go, oh, that's odd, but let, let's go. And you say, do you need anything from me? Should I bring something? Is there something that I was missing in the application? How can I make this go smoother? And the mortgage officer says, no, 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 I just want to meet with you. I just want to get to know with you. I just want to be friends. Well, well that's, not, that's not what I wanted out of this relationship. <laughs> I didn't send in the application for a friend. I sent in the application so that you would have my information, you would know what I needed, know what I wanted, and you would then approve me for it. You see the illustration that's being drawn here? Some of you are real sharp. I can tell you're already on it. Sometimes we treat God like that. We've sent him the application. We've mailed it in. We've let him know where we're at, what we need, how we're feeling, all the things that we're going through, and we're waiting for him to send back to us the hope that we want. And there's nothing wrong with that. The Bible makes it really, really clear that we are supposed to pour out our hearts to God in prayer, and he can handle every level of honesty that we could ever throw at him, right? But Jesus spends time with God because he wants to know him. He loves him. He just enjoys the company of God. When was the last time in prayer that you were simply there to enjoy the company of God the Father? Like Jesus, you just were inviting and saying, God, show me your glory, like Moses. Think about the, uh, Moses. When Moses asked God to show him his glory, Moses is the leader of a, 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 a disjointed people who have no home, who have no food, who have no water, who have, have no purpose. They don't know where they're going. And what does Moses do? He could have prayed 10 million things. God, I need, God, I need, God, I need, God, I need. What does he say? God, show me your glory. Show me more of you. Show me who you are. Take me into your presence. Bring me into that relationship. And that's the beauty of what God is asking us from us. He wants that prayer to be that open door relationship. In Revelation chapter three, God says to one of the churches, and I can't remember which church it is off the top of my head right now, but he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's talking to a group of Christians. He's not talking about unbelievers. He's not talking about, hey, this is the process of salvation. I knock and you answer the door. The Bible makes it really clear that is not the process of salvation. He says, I'm standing at the door knocking on the house of believers. I want to come in. I want to dine with you. I want to spend time with you. I want to revel in glory together. God wants to show you his glory through the face of Jesus. And why do I say that through Jesus? Because sometimes this concept of glory can be like super like ethereal and esoteric. It's like way up there and it's like this lofty thing. And we're like, I don't, I, how do I see it? How do I, how do I see the glory of God? How am I shown the glory of God? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, it says this, and it'll be up on the screen for you. 
For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. How do we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, in the story of salvation? These five verses take us, if you look at them carefully, they take us through God was with the Father, enjoying his presence in eternity. Jesus was with the Father. He left that glory on a rescue mission for you and for me. He glorified the Father by offering himself as a sacrifice for your sin, for my sin. And he returned to the presence of God to share and revel in the glory again. This is the story, the beauty of the gospel. And then he invites us into it. If we skip down a little bit, sometimes people include verse 24 with these first five verses, and I know why, because here's what it says. Verse 24 of chapter 17 in John. Father, I desire that they also who you have given me, Christians, all the believers, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. He's inviting us into that relationship through prayer. He's saying, come to me. Give glory to God. Receive glory from him. So a lesson in prayer, God wants to show you his glory through Jesus, and you may ask, so how do we do this? And here's what I would tell you. It looks like spending more time in prayer telling God who he is and listening to him about who you are. It's more time in adoration and praise and recognition of who he is. I wonder sometimes if in our relationships, like I think about my wife, I think about my kids. What if when I went to my kids or I went to my wife, all I did was basically give her a list of things that were my needs? Here's what I need out of this relationship. I need this, this, and this. Here's my wants. I would like some of these things out of this relationship. Let me know what you think about that and get back to me. What kind of a marriage? Would I? And when she goes, hey, that's great. I have the same list for you. Here's my wants and needs. And we just wait for them to come back, right? No. The best conversations I've had with my kids, with my friends, with my wife, are when they're telling me the things that they love about me, and I, in turn, am telling them the things that I love about them. If you have kids, maybe you've experienced this. I'll never forget the look in my son and my daughter's eyes when I speak to them of sincere terms and tell them how proud of them I am. Like, like the warmth that is there, the connection that's there, the, the power. We're giving glory to one another, esteem and honor and praise. We're encouraging one another. And so in this, God is inviting us into that type of a relationship with him, saying, this is what I want with you. Prayer is so much more than just asking. It's not less than. It's not less than asking, but it is more than that as well. So often when I spend time doing this, it rearranges my heart, it changes what I'm thinking, it changes me, and man, is that such a good thing. So a lesson about prayer. Thirdly, a lesson about life. More shuffling. A lesson about life. Let's take a look at verses two and three. Verse two, since you have given him all authority over all flesh, and he's saying since the Father has given the Son in this sympathetic relationship in the Trinity, 
Since the Father has given the Son all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this eternal life, and, or I'm sorry, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. God invites us to truly live, not simply exist. God invites us into new life. And, and I would even submit to you this, not just new life, but a new kind of life, a new order of life. In this passage, we look at this and we go, eternal life. Jesus is accomplishing eternal life on the cross. And sometimes the weight of the word eternal is kind of what sticks with us. We're like, man, eternal, I can't even imagine that. I can't grasp that. I, I, I'm temporal. I'm, I'm not eternal. So the fact that God would be accomplishing something eternal through Christ is amazing to me. But the word life is just as weighty. It's just as powerful and important because compared to what Christ is offering you, compared to what God is offering you through Christ, we don't have life. What he's offering us is something we do not have. It's not like he wants to tweak the life that we have. I'm not a scientist, but in the scientific community, there are kingdoms of um, living forms or, or life, life forms, right? And I kind of looked this up a little bit, and some say there's five, some say there's six. I, six, I went with five because I really don't care. And for the sake of the illustration, we're going to boil it down to three or four. But I thought this was interesting. So at the top of the food chain, you've got the animal kingdom, which I guess we're kind of lumped in with because we breathe and move and do other things. I think there's a higher order of animal, and it's called human because we have self-awareness, we have emotions, we can make decisions, we can do things, and so clearly that, that is a higher order. Under animal, you have plant. You can see a huge distinction between plant and animal, right? I mean, would you rather be a tree or like a great little puppy? I'd much rather be the puppy. Now, maybe some of you would rather be the tree. I, I don't know. But trees, flowers, plants. Now, think about this. I said there were five. We're only down to two. There's three things under a tree. I, that's, a, that's, a, that's amazing to me in God's creativity just for one. But so you go under the tree and you've got fungi, right? So mushrooms and that's the only one I can think of, right? <laughs> so you've got fungus. There's two things under fungi, Right? So the next one, now we're getting to things I've never even heard of. I don't really, well, protozoa is a word I've heard. But anyway, you have protists, protozoa, and all you need to know about, they're beneath fungus. Yeah, that's all you need to know. And then you have monera, or microscopic living things like bacteria, okay? For the sake of illustration, I want you to think about just like the difference between plant, animal, human, okay? At the plant level, right, it doesn't even, it, it's almost weird to us to call it living because we understand that it has cells and that makes it alive and it has processes to feed and, and those kind of things, but it's extremely dependent. It doesn't have any emotion or thought or even instincts or, or anything like that. And then you move up to animal and you go, okay, well now the animal has movement. It has sexual reproduction. It has all sorts of things like that. And then you, you move to human. You're like, well, now we're getting somewhere. We've got a soul. We, we've, we've, we can make decisions. We are, we're aware of ourselves. We act more than just on instinct, more than just the way that we're hardwired or programmed the way that animals do. And I want to submit to you what God is inviting us into as life 
is not like, it's another order of life beyond human. And I don't, I don't, we're not superhuman. It's not like we're all Captain America now. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that what he's inviting us into, into new life in Christ, is a bigger jump from where we are now than it would be from animal to human or from plant to animal. He's not simply just adding something to our life and and resurrecting it a little bit and redeeming it a little bit. He's asking us, I have a new way for you to be human. I have a new purpose, a new thing to be satisfied by. I have new emotion for you. I I have things that would have devastated you before that will not devastate you now. I'm asking you to trade your life for my life. I'm asking to trade your dreams for my dreams, but don't worry, they're better. I'm asking you to rearrange everything about your life so that when we say the words, all of life is all for Jesus, it's not just a pithy statement or a hope, it's a reality because we recognize that nothing else is worth living for. He's inviting us to a different plane, a a way of truly living not simply existing. I mean, think about this for a second. If I don't know Christ, if I don't know Jesus and I do not have the hope of heaven, what am I doing here? I'm just, I'm existing. I'm, I'm making it through. I'm making it through to the end. But if I know Christ, I have life and life eternal spending time in relationship with him, glorifying the Father and receiving things from his glory. It's unbelievable that he offers that to us. And he says, how do you get this life? You get this through knowing the only true God, through knowing him. So my question is, do you know him? Do you know the only true God? It's very clear in this passage that that knowing is more than a few things, and I want to give you three things that this knowledge of God is more than. It goes far beyond an awareness. It's not simply being aware of God, like, oh yeah, I know that God is out there. I know God exists. It It is not awareness. It is awareness, but it is more than awareness. It is not simply information. We can sit in a church pew for all of our lives and hear over and over and over information about God, but that does not give us true knowledge of God. That does not prove true knowledge of God. It is more than just information. It is more than awareness. And it is also, believe it or not, more than experience. Being in youth ministry for so many years and hearing Brian talk about winter camp and summer camp, I'm keenly aware of this. I've watched so many students over the years come to a summer camp or a winter camp or on a Wednesday night, and they are sitting in the midst of the experience of God. They're they're seeing the movement of God. They're seeing people be saved. They're seeing people be released from sin. They're seeing all sorts of things going on. They've experienced what it looks like to be among the people of God, but that does not mean that they know him. It is more than experience. It is more than information. It is more than awareness. It is a relationship with God that opens my heart to his, to know him, to know his character, to know his attributes, to receive those, and then to trade my life for his. And this changes everything. This changes everything. My life was all for me. All of my life was all for me. And now my life is all for Jesus. This is life-changing stuff. And lastly, the last lesson a lesson about living, a lesson about living. 
In verse 4, this phrase is, is pretty interesting. I, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He's saying, God, I, I gave glory to you here on earth because I, I showed everyone that I could all of our attributes, all of who we are. I lifted you up. I gave you fame. I gave you renown. I completed the work that you had for me. And so here's the statement. God has a work for you to complete. How do we emulate Christ? How do we follow his example? He he was the, the perfect example of what it looked like to give glory to God. He was the perfect example of finishing the work. So how does this work for us? God has a work for us. He has something for us to finish. He has something for you to finish. And this is not intended to send you on some mythical quest for the, the specific thing or the, the secret thing that God has for you, although I do believe that God has specific calls for specific people. But here's something that I know in a place that we can start. I know that God has, or, or that God calls all people to certain things. I may not know the specific thing that each one of you is called to by God, but I do know this. In Matthew chapter 28, we have this passage called the Great Commission, where Jesus is leaving the earth. He's resurrected from the grave, and he's visiting with his disciples one last time before ascending into heaven, and he leaves them with this. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. God has invited us into this work. He's invited us into a relationship of prayer with him where we get to know who God really is. He's invited us into relationship with him that we would have new life a life that blows away anything that we could ever experience or have here on this earth. And he's invited, he's invited us into a purpose, a work, something to do, something to finish. Now, this certainly does not mean that all are called to vocational missions or vocational pastoral work, though some are. What it means is that the work of every Christian involves experiencing, exalting, and sharing the glory of God with those around us. And let me give you this encouragement to remember the small things. You say, well, okay, my work is to exalt and glorify God, to share that with the people around me. How do I do that? And in, in your mind, you might be thinking, I know like, like I would have thought, like, okay, I, I'm, I'm picturing myself just sharing the gospel with every single person that I meet. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. Although beating people over the head with your Bible is not always the greatest thing either. But I want you to think about the small things. And don't underestimate them and the opportunities that you have to give glory to God in every facet, every area of your life. Are you a father? Are you a mother? Are you a wife, a husband, an employer, an employee, a student, a child? What are the ways that you can exalt God in that position of your life? We talked about it already a little bit, like, like how much does your relationship with your, your wife resemble the relationship of God the Son and God the Father? How much does your relationship with your kids resemble that? How much does your relationship with your coworkers resemble that? Now, we're not in control of all those things, but we do get to control how we react to those things. We get to control how we demonstrate love to the people in our lives. Clearly, that is part of our work. 
we should do all of life and all of our work for the glory of God. Second Corinthians, First Corinthians ten thirty one tells us that. As we kind of close, I want I want to read this to you. Um, in fact, before we do that, I I found I, I thought of this in this new life. I, I want to read a couple things to you as we close. One is uh, is a song that I heard a, a long time ago, and it came to my mind because I thought that's crazy. I just understood that concept from a song from 10, 15 years ago, I just understood that concept in a new and much more deep way simply because of studying for this message. It's from a band called Switchfoot, and the song is called New Way to Be Human. And when we're talking about this life that we're being invited into, this life that God is inviting us up to, and and just so you know, and so we think about this, like, we can't accomplish it. Like, no more could, could a plant decide to be an animal then we could decide to elevate to this level of life that God is inviting us into and calling us to. He reaches down and pulls us up into an existence that we would not otherwise have. And this song, New Way to Human, says this, every day it's the same thing, another trend has begun. Hey kids, this might be the one. It's a race to be noticed and it's leaving us numb. Hey kids, can we be the ones? Obviously, this song, if you know Switchfoot at all, is targeted more towards a younger audience, right? But it, it so, I mean, it so uh, epitomizes what we see in the world around us. He goes on, with all of our fashion, we're still incomplete. The God of redemption could break our routine. The routine of that mundane life apart from Christ, he wants to break that routine. There's a new way to be human. It's nothing we've ever been. There's a new way to be human, a new way to be human. He's talking about that thing that God is inviting us into a new way to be human. And where is our inspiration? When all the heroes are gone, hey kids, we could be the ones because no one's famous and nobody's fine. We all need forgiveness. We're longing inside. There's a new way to be human. It's nothing we've ever been. There's a new way to be human. It's human. It's spreading under my skin. There's a new way to be human where divinity blends with a new way to be human, a new way to be human. That's the longing of every heart. And, and maybe you're here this morning and you recognize that you don't know Christ in that way. You don't know God in that way. I would invite you and I would, I would, I would just implore you, ask you, like consider why. Why haven't I made the decision to know God in that way when he has come and he has given everything. He has left his glory. He has sacrificed on the cross. Maybe this would be the day that you would enter into that new way to be human, enter into that relationship. And for those of you who are believers, and you're considering the work that God has for us. James Montgomery Boyce frames it this way. You must apply our text by noting that Christ did not his own work, but rather that which was given to him by God. You must ask, am I doing what God has given me to do? Am I doing all of it? Or have I slipped my own plans in along the line for my own benefit and so ceased to serve him? If you do not have time to tell others about the gospel or work to bring them where they may hear it, you are too busy. You cannot say, as Jesus did, I have completed the work you gave me to do, but you can say, I am working at the work you gave me to do. Moreover, receive this encouragement. While it is true that you and I will never fully finish our work in the sense of having done it to perfection like Jesus did, we can nevertheless finish it in the sense of hanging on to the very end. God help us. God help us. If you don't know him, please come. 
know him. He's inviting you into the relationship that we talked about. If you do, let's be about the work that he's calling us to finish, to complete. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning, for this passage, for the things that come out of it. God, we, we barely scratched the surface, and God, you are so kind to us and so good to us. God, we, we love you. And God, I just, I wanna pray right now for my own heart, and as I do for, for the hearts of um, everyone here, God, the, the discipline of entering into prayer and adoring you is not something that's easy, and sometimes it's not very natural, because it feels like we're, we're so practical, we're so pragmatic, we, we, wanna, we wanna tell you and pour out our hearts, but God, so often in prayer, when I discipline myself to come before you and, and tell you of your worth and your holiness and, and recognize your compassion and thank you for your kindness, God, so many of the things that I wanted to petition you about, God, they begin to blend into the background. God, make us a people who come before you and share in your glory, who see the glory of who you are through the face of Jesus. God, and allow that to change everything about us. Father, we pray this in your name. Amen.